Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's show is a masterclass from one of the most acclaimed British actors of our time. The star of movies including Truly Madly Deeply, Emma and Mona Lisa Smile, and plays including Death of a Maiden at the Royal Court, Measure for Measure at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and Happy Days at the Young Vic. I mean, of course, Juliet Stevenson. Juliet joined us around Matthew Stadlin's kitchen table to reveal what she's learned about the art, craft and business of acting in four decades as a star of stage and screen. We're in my kitchen, Juliet, so welcome. You're drinking tea that I've made. I'm not a tea drinker. Is it drinkable? You look a little sceptical. I give it a... A five. That's not good. It's it's better than a four. It's not. It's worse than a six. Yeah, there's room for improvement in your tea making, but you know that's a good thing. Jumping straight from bad tea to good acting. Why are you an actress? I don't entirely know why I'm an actress. It. I would say if it doesn't sound too pretentious that it chose me rather than me consciously choosing it. I grew up in a, in a in a in a forces environment, moving on different countries every two years. So I didn't watch British telly, I didn't see films, and I didn't go to the theatre much until I was in my teens when the family settled back in the UK. So it wasn't because I was inspired by watching those things. It was a strange route, but um, I was at school. I was about ten years old. There was a speech day coming up. There were lots of different extracts of poems and bits of prose lying on a table. And they said, you know, at speech day, we'll all do a little, um, you know, recital. You can read one of these things. And I picked up a piece of paper randomly and on it was a poem. And I read this poem to myself and I was filled with this incomprehensible, passionate desire to read it out loud. The poem was an adult poem written by W.H. Auden, and I now know it was a poem um, from one man to another, a love poem, but I didn't know that then. I just was filled with its language and its rhythms, and I had a strong sense of wanting to be the conduit through which this poem passed to a group of people listening. And I remember it so distinctly. It was one of those sort of light bulb moments that happen to you when you when you're growing up sometimes that shape your a whole the whole of the rest of your life and so I said can I read this and they said oh no that's much too grown up for you and I said no I you know wouldn't you like to read a piece of A.A. Milne or something and I said no I really want to read this and I spent a lot of time since trying to understand what it was about the poem and I think it's it's a poem by Auden called if I could tell you I would let you know and it is a love poem. It's complicated, but it has a really beautiful, simple rhythm. 
And that line is repeated like a sort of bell tolling at the end of each verse. And it just went in, you know, when I went from my reading it into the sort of blood system, it, I don't remember making a choice. It, I just had to speak it. And I think that since I've come to understand the, the, the power and the significance of rhythm in language and how much rhythm alone communicates, just like music, um, rhythmically, leaving aside the literal sense of the words. And it's something I've become very preoccupied with and now understand better. But at the time, I think I was sort of just filled with this rhythm, the way that some musical kids hear a piece of music when they're four or five and have to play the piano or learn the violin or write a tune or whatever. Um, and from that first desire to be a conduit, you know, that went on really in, in, in random patches through my schooling. And when I got a bit older, we did do little plays and things like that. And I just began to feel more and more that I wanted to inhabit other lives and communicate the experience of those lives to people. Um, it was in, it was very internal. It wasn't like you know I look, you know I'm, I'm I'm not being an actor because I look good, which I never thought I did, and you know struggle with to this day. It was always about interior drives, internal things. When I now look at that poem, I see that it was a poem about not being able to tell somebody how they love them, and it's interesting because I think that might have been connected to being at military boarding schools where you didn't see your mum and dad for like 12 weeks you know and it's a long time when you're nine ten years old to go and and to go without seeing your your parents and I think now I've had children and I, I I see how they come home from school and they tell you their day and they pour out their problems or their encounters or what they've experienced good or bad and I think what who did I do that to when I was a child there wasn't anybody to do that to I had my mates who we'd played with you certainly didn't talk to teachers like that so what did I do with all that stuff that children need to do when they're communicating their experience? And I don't know where that stuff went. So maybe the poem spoke to me in ways I didn't understand, but the simplicity of this utterance, this kind of exquisite, simple, rhythmic line just went straight into the centre of me. And I, I think that's why I became an actor. And even though, you know, 50 years later, I it's all got much more complicated and, you know, I'm in the industry and the profession. And, but I often go back to that moment, that very simple, pure moment and think that is what we are. That is, you know, leaving aside all the complications of the industry and its, its ramifications and its silliness sometimes and its complexity. That is what we are. We are conduits through which other human experience is channeled. But do you think you would have become an actress without having read that poem? I think so, because I think when you have that inside you, it isn't going to be one incident. That'll be the incident to it, that attached itself to me at that age. But if it hadn't been then and that, it probably would have been something else a little later. So, yeah. And was it about wanting to become an actress? You used the word want, but you also talked about children who have to play the piano. Or was it about having to be an actress? For me, it's quite close to having to ask questions, to having to be interested in people, because I am, that's who I am. And I want to perform as well, but it sometimes feels like I have to perform. I didn't decide I wanted to be an actress because I didn't know. I mean, I might as well have decided to be an astronaut. I mean, I wasn't in a world where actors existed. You know, I wasn't in a, a family or a school situation where anybody was one. I literally could have said I'd like to be, a, you know, walk on the moon. I mean, it was that unlikely. But the form it took was I want to communicate human experience through this, through me, not through painting or music, but through me, through language and what's passing through me. It was really general, but it's... It, 
you know, it's a very strong instinct. So I then decided, and everybody else decided, you know, for the best reasons, you know, you obviously you're not going to be an actress, but, you know, you may be interested in drama and you'll go to university and read English and drama and maybe teach it afterwards and so on. And I did all those things. I went to, you know, did A-levels and I got my place at Bristol University to read English and drama. And then another light bulb moment was I had my place. I longed for this place. There were very few places I managed to get it was thrilled to get into Bristol on that course. And then I sat up in bed one morning and thought, what on earth am I doing reading drama at university? What am I going to do with that? Well, I don't want to study this subject academically. I want to be it. I want to live it, you know, and how do I do that? And why have I been nudged into this path, you know, by very well-meaning parents and teachers and so on? So I then wrote to a drama school saying, can I audition? And I only knew about Raj. I hadn't heard of any others. And they said, yes, come on, April, whatever. So I turned up with my two little pieces that I'd learned and just did it. But I had no expectation of getting in. So I I wasn't thinking about I'm going to be an actress. I was just thinking I just have to keep going with this instinct wherever it takes me. And it'll probably take me to a brick wall very soon. In fact, after the audition, I, I walked out of Rada and walked back to the tube. And if there hadn't been a girl on the front desk who ran down Gower Street after me and said, Oi, where do you think you're going? You know, you've got to stay and re-audition and meet the principal and all that. I probably... So that was how clear it was to me that wasn't what I was going to do. So it wasn't back to front because I remember speaking to a BBC journalist once and he said, if you want to become a presenter, you have to love the story. You have to be hungry for the story. You can't aim really to be a presenter. In other words, really, you have to be a reporter first. You have to really, really want to get on top of the nitty gritty, the story, tell those stories. And if you're really good at it, then fine, you can become a presenter later on. So it wasn't as though you were looking at glamorous film stars and saying, I've got to be one of those. Absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite. I was extremely lacking in confidence about appearances and I grew up quite a complicated girl. I mean, I didn't have the women's movement around me then. So I always thought there was something a bit weird about me. I didn't want to wear certain things. I was... You know, I was confused about myself, but I had this passionate desire to sort well, I read a lot and I did love communication. And I think it's, your story is interesting because I think it's a similar thing. I think not dissimilar at all. I want to hear people's stories, whether I'm reading them or talking to people about them or watching films, or I want to inhabit other people's lives. I want, I want to be able to use my own experience and my own feelings about life but translate them through somebody else's experience and somebody else's narrative. And so to what extent is the relationship you have with an audience when you're on stage two-way? It's not just, I suspect, you communicating with the audience, although that's the majority of it. It's also coming the other way. The audience is also responding to you, and you might not be able to see the whites of their eyes because it's darkened, but you get a sense of the atmosphere. How aware are you of that on stage and, and how symbiotic is it? It's really symbiotic um, and that's why theatre in the end, if I had to choose, which I hope I never will have to, I'd have to choose theatre because it is the only place where you have that extraordinary symbiotic relationship and it's such a weird experience being on stage because if you want to work, act really well, you have to immerse as deeply as possible into this person mm. you're playing out there. And, you know, whether you're on, a, you're on an island, you know, um, in the Tempest, you're playing Miranda and you're on an island and there's oceans and there's sailors and whatever world you're creating or you're in an office or you're in a bedroom or wherever it is, you are inhabiting a piece of fiction. But at the same time, part of you is obviously 
highly aware that you are performing on a stage and there's lights and there's an end of the stage and you mustn't fall off it and there's audience out there. So it's this strange hybrid between two concurrent um, realities that Which are running together. Which perhaps Shakespeare puts his finger on, ironically, given that you cite The Tempest, in, in that closing speech of Prospero's when he appeals to the audience. So in a way, he steps outside of his role to ask the audience help, I think, in ending the play. Mm, I can't yeah, remember, yeah, yeah, but you know what, yeah, I'm, yeah, you know what yeah. I'm referring to. Yeah, but I think audience uh, identity is the most mysterious and wonderfully mysterious thing. So actors will always talk about the audience. They are like this tonight. They mm. are sleepy tonight. They and are, are they? Yeah, they do. And so, so whether it's 50 people or 1,050 people, depending on the size of the theatre. They take on a character. They take on a single character, even though you know that people will be having very different experiences out there. And when I am in an audience myself and, you know, 60 people are laughing and I'm not laughing at all or the other way around, I know that we're not having the same response. We're having very different responses. But on stage, actors will always give the audience an identity. And it's very, very clear. So there are nights when people cough a lot. They're not. They're restless. And you know that they're not really engaged. And the minute that you start to focus down very much on on pulling them in, on focusing on the other actor, on really concentrating, that coughing and that restlessness will stop usually. So there is... And, and it wordlessly, an audience will give you an idea of how they're responding to what you're doing. And they will... There's this thing that happens. You rehearse a play for four, five, six, seven weeks, depending on where you are. You learn and research and explore this play um, in great detail. You know it well. You then run it a few times in the rehearsal room. You think you're really getting the measure of this play. When you go out on stage for the first time at a preview or something, or even at a dress rehearsal with just a few technicians watching, and you play it to a group of other people, you learn infinite amounts about that play, more than you've maybe learnt in weeks of rehearsal. There's something about sharing it and bringing it into life with an audience. And if you ran the play without even two or three people out there, you wouldn't have the same experience. It's just that their presence tells you how to shape it, where it's too long, where it's too slow, where it's too fast, whether it's not really moving them, whether it's not really making them laugh, where the boring bits, the longers are, where it might need cutting. I mean, you learn volumes from that relationship and every night the audience changes. And it's absolutely a two-way thing. And I think audiences don't necessarily know that, but actors have, you know, antennae out every night and will be drinking in that information very, very subconsciously. Well, that's what I was going to try and delve a little bit deeper into momentarily. Spell out to us even more clearly how it is then that you both are able to be deep in character, really inhabit the personality that you're playing, but also be aware of the audience and have that part of your brain that is able to respond. Well, it's really hard to describe I suppose one analogy I could clutch at would be like when you're driving a car on a journey, which you know well, so you don't have to focus on the route. You're driving a car involving all sorts of quite complicated manoeuvres and synchronicity of brain and hand and foot and clutch and gear and looking out for other traffic and stopping at red lights and all those things. But you're having a big conversation with somebody in the passenger seat. And the conversation with that person might be, let's say it's a really important conversation. Um, You're focused entirely on that conversation. You're hearing everything they say, you're replying, you're thinking about how to reply, you're hearing what their response is. And that's at the front of your mind. 
Everything else is happening. You get to your destination, you haven't crashed, you've found the right route, but that's happening at some peripheral level. That's kind of an analogy for being on stage, in which case the play would be the passenger in the seat with whom you're having a conversation. That's in the front of your mind. And the peripheral stuff, the driving of the car, is that you're in a theatre with lights, audiences, wings, you know. Do you see what I mean? I think so that's that if someone coughs really loudly, it's like someone pulling out in front of you and you are suddenly aware of it. Yes, exactly. It is quite a good analogy. I mean, for example, there was one instance in Death and the Maiden, which was a very intense, no interval, 90 minutes through without stopping, relentless play I did. Um, I was on stage right in the middle of it with a huge scene with, them, with Billy Patterson playing my husband. And I started to hear seats pop um, going up, Seat, seats, you know, flapping back into place. And I thought, oh, people are leaving. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a big hit, this show, so people didn't usually walk out. Um, and then after a while, I heard more and more. And then we kept on going, we kept on going. And then we heard a lot of seats plopping up and we heard movement in the audience. And we thought, well, they're all walking out. <laughs> what the <laughs> hell? You know, this was a hit show. And... It took us, the interesting thing about the story is how long it took us to stop. We kept going and going and going, me and Billy. And eventually it was absurd. And only when it was absurd to keep going did we actually stop, look out front and saw that the entire audience were filing out because there was a fire. (laughs) But what's interesting, what was interesting, as I said to Billy afterwards, how long we went on for before we could stop this, the machine of this fiction from going, you know, You've got a kid in the back of the car being sick and, you, you know, if you're, if you're a man, you can't stop. As everybody knows, men can't stop their cars. So, you know, it, the, the child has to be very, very sick before you pull over onto the hard shoulder. Tell us how you own a stage as well as a theatre when you're on stage largely on your own as you were in Happy Days, directed, I think, by Natalie Abrahami, who you have a special affection for as a director. And you were playing Winnie. And that must be incredibly intense, I would imagine, but maybe not. Tell us, tell us how, you, how you cope on your own, exposed in that way. Although, of course, you weren't entirely exposed because you were kind of buried for a lot of the play. Physically semi buried. Yeah, because the terrifying thing, for those who don't know the play, the character is buried up to her waist in sand, sand. and she can't move. She doesn't go on and off. She's just always there. And the second half, she's buried up to her neck, so just a head left on the stage. And... Um, Well, that's the most terrifying show I've ever had to do because you literally can't move. So if something goes wrong, you can't escape. And if you dry, as in forget your lines, you're stuck. You've got no crutches. You've got no crutches. And you haven't got anybody else coming in and saying, you know, a letter, my lord, from Rome. Or, you know, how are you doing today? You've got nobody coming in and giving you cues. There is a character, her husband, Willie, who's crawling around out of sight. And he has occasional utterances, but normally just one or two words and not enough to, to, to be like, you know, to, to be helping you. So to you have provide these, any relief. Really. No, no. And there's, and, and I, I knew it was going to be incredibly exposing. And the reason I said yes to it, apart from loving Samuel Beckett, who wrote it, was that I'd had a bad period of stage fright, but had got worse before that. Um, in ordinary plays with, you know, large casts, I had begun to have this stage fright thing and it got worse and worse until I was just terrified from about lunchtime onwards every day to have to go out that night and my head was full of demons saying you're going to forget you're going to forget and I couldn't focus and there was absolutely no joy there was only terror and you know I love the theatre very much and I couldn't imagine a life without being in it and doing plays and I thought what am I going to do um and I tried to get help of various descriptions I talked to other actors because it's not uncommon it's a bit like a sort of secret people have to 
come out and declare it, which is why I'm talking about it now. Um, and then I got asked to do Happy Days, which is the ultimately terrifying job. This is the equivalent of Ian Holm after many years of stage fright, appearing as King Lear and going naked in the storm in the Cotterstone, Richard Eyre, Sir Richard Eyre's direction. Absolutely phenomenal it was. Mm. And what a brave thing to do as a way perhaps of getting over stage fright. And that was kind of the equivalent for you, it was so exposed. It, it, it was. I mean, even Leah does go off stage, but of course, no, I mean, that was a huge thing that, that Ian did. But he took years and years and years off where he couldn't get on the stage. And I... You hadn't done that. I hadn't done that. I just, it just got worse and worse. And uh, I'd had a few months since the last play, maybe a year. But I thought, well, what am I going to do? If I turn this down, that's it. It's one. Stage fright has beaten me and that's it. I'll never go, go on stage again. If I say yes, I'll have to confront it and deal with it. But saying yes was terrifying because it's the ultimate nightmare to be alone on stage and physically stuck and you can't move and there's nobody to help if you dry, if you forget. So, but I had to say yes. And then having said yes, I then had X number of months before rehearsal started when I had to deal with it. And um, I didn't really deal with it until very, very last minute before we started rehearsals. I tried a lot of things, hypnosis, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so it was terrifying. In fact, about six weeks before we started rehearsal, my agent rang up and said, the Evening Standard want to announce this at the Young Vic and would you do an interview with them? And I went into meltdown on the pavement in central London and said, I, 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 I can't, I can't. I'm not going to be doing it. And they said, hello, what are you talking about? I said, I can't, I can't. I completely melted down and I went home and the agent came home and said, okay, let's... So then I had to tell him what had been going on and my terrors. And so that was the first time I'd really spoken to anybody about it. What had been going on? I, I don't know. I don't know why it happened. I really have no... wasn't triggered by a particular incident, by forgetting a line or anything like that? No, because that's happened to me before. It is frightening, but normally if you stay calm, it'll come back or a fellow actor will help you out. And, you know, it's a bit like the car. It, it stalls a bit and then the engine picks up and you, and you go on. And no, I don't, I don't to this day know what happened, um, except that I, I did have a very bad experience on one play, um, which was not happy. Most of my theatre experiences have been really, really happy, but there was one really very destructively unhappy process, rehearsal process and, and run of a play, which in which I felt extremely sort of diminished and um, I lost a lot of confidence during it. Um, I tried to go back on stage afterwards and I did, but then the problem began and I don't know whether those were connected. It might also be an age thing, you know, that you reach a certain age and, you know, sadly, as you get older, the confidence that you've acquired after working for many years starts to leave you in a way. You don't get more and more confident the older you get. Confidence, there's sort of a peak and then it starts to drain away and it's tough. Um, I mean, this is across all professions, I'm sure, but it's quite tough that it happens. And I think it was linked to menopause, which I also think needs outing, you know, that women can often experience huge confidence loss, self-doubt, um, frailties of all kinds, and, and it may have coincided with that as well. So, But of course, once you get through that, if you do get through it, as you did, and it was a huge success, Happy Days, then that experience that you have developed over those decades is still there. Yeah. And can then re-empower you. 
Totally, and um, I was very lucky to have the wonderful Natalie Abrahami directing it because I it's a huge learn. It's, it's a mountainous thing to have to learn, Happy Days. It's mountains of text, and I didn't actually, I wasn't completely off book. You know, I hadn't learnt the whole thing, even when we were running the play at the end of rehearsal, and she never flapped or panicked. She was completely calm. She said, I know you'll be fine. You know, we'll now, most directors would have got quite upset and nervous and we stopped 12 times in the final run through in the rehearsal room which is scary for a director um and it wasn't that I was in stage fight in rehearsal room it doesn't happen in rehearsal room but she was right and because she had calm confidence in me I um absorbed that and I was fine and I I never did dry on stage or if I did I just breathed and let it come back which it always did so I was you know, she she had a very wonderfully female room. It was I say that because it was a very gentle, creative, nurturing room, which many rehearsals rooms are not. And, and this, by the way, was a play a lot about how the world looks through a woman's eyes, which was important to yeah. you as well, wasn't it? And a woman very out of touch with herself. I mean, a woman who is not a conscious woman. You know, she's been a suburban housewife, and I'm choosing those words carefully and deliberately. You know, she um, she's sort of middle middle class woman with bourgeois aspirations you know she's got a handbag with all sorts of you know lipsticks and first thing she does is brush her teeth put lipstick on powder her face you know she's she's a she's a traditional woman but you know he was writing a lot about his mother and who was stuck like many women screaming silently in some suburb somewhere and um which does lead i think to an important question about the roles that there are or are not for women in theater and in film my sense since we last spoke maybe doing an interview for the telegraph a few years ago is that not only is your career flourishing and that there are plenty of parts for you as largely there have been but also that there seem to me on tv dramas women are more and more becoming the central figure of those dramas. So I'm thinking, for example, of Kate Beckinsdale in in The Widow, and I'm thinking of Anna Friel in a series that I watched. The, these are all roles where women are absolutely front and centre. Do you sense that things are changing? Things are changing, and things have changed loads since I was a young woman, no question. I mean, when I was a young actress, basically most actresses after the age of 40 largely disappeared and um, then if you were lucky to survive that very tricky period between 40 and perhaps 65, you might reemerge as the Dame Peggy Ashcroft and all those people did as some sort of you know, dowager um, national treasure at the end. But, but the, the really difficult years are between 40 and, and 65. And I think things are better, but they absolutely are not there yet. I mean... It's not true that there aren't that there are loads of roles for me out there, and there are not. Um, and I am one of the lucky ones, and I'm well aware of it. There are loads of actresses whose careers die at the age of forty, and and it's still it's still something we have to be very vigilant about. Um, and I think that one of the things that's happening with women taking on men's roles, like Glenda Jackson playing King Lear, or or Adjoa Ando playing Richard II, these are great. Uh, you know, I, I love. I'm very interested in the gender swapping thing, but those are male roles. And I suppose my argument would be is they're not female stories. They're not telling the world from a female perspective. They're not using female language or women's methodology or, or relationships to the world. There's, you know, they're men's roles written by men. And I think there is a great need for women's stories to be told. And not just as ingenues, you know, not just as young women who are being fancied or pursued or who are in jeopardy, but women 
who have lived for a while and have an enormous amount of experience to tell. Having built up such a body of experience, do you still fall back, if that's the right way of putting it, on those rada years? Do they inform the grammar of how you act? Were those years indispensable to you and are they still useful? Yeah, they were indispensable and I totally believe in training. I think you have to train um, if you want to be other than just yourself. I mean, you can go into the industry and act some version of yourself at 23 or whatever. If you want to transform, which is the job description, to play other people who are not like you, you need skills. Just like a plumber needs a tool bag, you need skills and that will ensure you have a longer career, much more diverse career. So yeah, RADA set me up, but I think the training has gone on and on ever since. And yet at the same time, as well as that training and as well as the training at RADA specifically, presumably having a wealth of human experience, just as being a woman or as being a human being, that then can also help and inform your performance. So that if you have a really sad moment when you are required to cry, and you've told me before in an interview, I think for the BBC, that it's not a tap, you can't just turn it on, but you do or have drawn on sad experiences of the past that can help you in performance? Oh yeah, I mean, I relentlessly use my own life and I I say that actors are recycling machines. We're recycling our own life experience and the more you have of that, the more you have to recycle. It isn't that your experience is the same as the characters, but the pool is the same. Fear is the same. Grief, loss. You can translate your experience of those things through the particularities of that character, but the pool, the bank of it is is yours. And um, I think that the longer life goes on, the more you have to offer from that point of view. Are there any things that you feel hold you back in what you want to do as an actress in your repertoire? You haven't really been stereotyped, have you? I've tried really hard not to be stereotyped. Um, I have consciously chosen jobs that make move me sideways rather than forward sometimes to avoid being labelled or stereotyped. Um, and that's always been my goal because it's up to you to keep yourself learning and moving on and changing. And you have, to, if, if a job seems too easy, if I feel I'm in a very comfortable zone, I might well not take it unless I have to just to earn the money because it's, it's too easy. So you, you, you've got to do something you're afraid to do, whether it's the form you're afraid of or the material or it's new territory. That's where you get challenged and that's where you stay on your toes. Otherwise, I think you get boring. I imagine, though, that having to earn money from your craft kind of keeps you honest in a way. Yeah, it does. I mean, I I do have to earn. I've never received, you know, I've never had any money other than what I earned. And I have to earn quite a lot. We've got four kids between us. And and, um, so I have sometimes had to say yes to jobs that are about being paid well, because the the work I love to do, like at the Almeida doing these amazing plays or the Young Vic or whatever, are extremely badly paid, you know, like really minimal pay and so very often the greatest work as an actor is very badly paid and the stuff you might not want to do is better paid but that's just uh, an equation you have to to make give us a sense of the importance of teamwork both with the director but also with other actors and also try to nail this for me is chemistry something that you either have with another actor or actress or you don't or is it something that you can develop and maybe even manufacture teamwork i think that it's everything so now what matters to me more than what I do, the role, people say, what are you going to play next? I said, I'm not really interested in the role I'm going to play next, but who am I going to work with? So for me, who you work with is everything. And um, for example, Robert Icke at the Almeida or Natalie Abrahami, or, um, because I have relationships with them where they're challenging of me, they don't accept, you know, 
Juliet Stevenson PLC, you know, they, they want me to go into new ground, they challenge me, but I know that there's a mutual fondness and respect there, so I can really experiment and really be brave in the room. Um, and who you work with is absolutely crucial. And for me, I'm always looking to work with actors who are collaborators, who out there recognise that what happens on a stage to make it scintillating and interesting is in the space between us, not what I do or what they do, but in the space between us. And um, chemistry, yeah, sometimes it's instant and you just, just like people you meet in life and you just click, right? But sometimes it's not instant and you have to work on it. And that's, there are examples of that quite recently where I have had to work on something and you either get there or you don't. And just briefly, what about office politics? Are you, is there a sense in which an actress, just like anyone in any office or in, in, in any job, has to kind of behave themselves? Are you conscious of wanting to be easy to work with? I don't know that I want that I'm easy to work with, but I would question what difficult to work with means. I mean, I think when I was young, I was labelled difficult to work with. And I know that's because I did have a lot of thoughts in a rehearsal room. And I never saw an actor's job ending at their part, their role. I always thought, surely we're allowed to concern ourselves with the whole play and the design that you make for us will affect how we are. So can I say something about that design? And most you know, directors in those days did not want you to overstep the boundaries of being your actress playing that part and, 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 and about everything else. Shut up, please. Now, I think one of the great things, you know, is that those things have changed. Actors are allowed to say in the room. I love being part of a team. That means that anybody else can say to me, Julia, if you pause too long there, you're really messing me up because I would say something in that pause and I go, God, yeah, you're right. And that person can be playing a servant. I don't care. I think we all have the right in the room to contribute to this whole piece that we're making together. It's like a cricket team, a football team. Sport is an absolutely perfect analogy because every member of a football team has their talent and their skill. But unless they're working as a team, they're going to lose that game. And I think that's, you know, the perfect analogy for us to... And so Michael Caine said to me once in an interview that a key, or he wrote it in his book that I read before interviewing him, that a key part of being a successful actor is to listen. So a lot of actors or actresses just switch off when the other person's saying their bit. But it's essential that you listen so that your reaction is more real. Totally. He's completely right. I mean, I would say acting is 80, 90% listening. And if you're listening... Everything can happen that can take place. You know, you're not planning it. You you listen on stage and it makes the relationship between you scintillate. And then you respond as it takes you in that moment. If you come on with a pre-planned, you know, packaged Ikea, (laughs) flat-packed performance and erect it on stage and it's not going to be as exciting. And the audiences won't know why, but it won't be. For me, everything, it's a live event. You go out there, you don't know what's going to happen. You have to forget, you know, and you have to re-enter that experience as freshly as possible and then listen and uh, yeah he's he's completely right about that take us backstage just for a moment before you go on for a performance do your emotions tend to change from one night to the next how do you build consistency do you psych yourself up yeah I mean repetition is the biggest challenge it's really really hard you know I've just last year finished a long long run of Mary Stewart in the West End you know we did four months in the West End eight shows a week we'd done two runs before that it's it's really, really hard. You know something inside out. You, you know, many actors on stage don't change what they do. So you already know how it's going to happen. And you have to not know any of those things. First of all, I do a big physical warm up so that you're physically stretched and energized and supple and on your center. Do a vocal warm up so that you can be heard. Um, so that language will be will be filled by your mouth and your breath. 
And then I try and locate myself in the person, normally from about half an hour before the show onwards. So my dressing room is covered in sticky notes with statements or quotes or little memos or poems or thoughts about her. And I try and keep those refreshed and change them and add to them as a run goes on. Before I ask you for your top tips, just very quickly, because we're running out of time, I just want to ask you to give us the briefest synopsis of the difference between being a theatre actress and a film actress? Uh, Immersion. So when you're on stage, you can completely immerse and you don't come up out of that fiction for as long as you're out on stage for and you are free. You can do anything you like. You can change it. You can, you're absolutely free. I'm, I'm never as free as I am on a stage, not on any mountaintop, not in any ocean swimming. I'm never as free as I am on a stage if it's going well. In a film or TV situation, it's never about you, really. You're fat, you know, you're, 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 the experience is shaped in the editing room by the director. And, and I love filming, but it's much less liberating. In fact, it's quite constricting. And you have, it's very challenging to stay free creatively when that camera turns, because it may only turn for 30 seconds or three minutes, or, you know, and you've got to immerse in that moment just as much as you have on stage. But there's everything to distract you from that. Whereas on stage, once you're out there, you know, you're swimming in that fiction and, and you're somebody else and there's, you know, and, and yeah. And yet some of your most memorable roles are on the big screen. I think of Truly Madly Deeply, Bend It Like Beckham, so on and so forth. But interestingly, those are films in which the director gave us loads of freedom. Finally, top tips. Sir Richard Eyre once said to me when I said, maybe I should become an actor, Richard. What do you think? He said, I don't think you could deal with the process of constant rejection. <laughs> top tips, please, for me uh, or anyone else. No, if you can't, you can't cope with rejection, it's not for you, although you can learn to cope with it. But I love mentoring young actors now. And I see, you know, I've got several young people just a year or two out of drama school. And I see how torturous it is to keep themselves going with so much rejection. You have to accept that's part of it. You have to roll with the punches. Um, and um, I would say don't do it unless you can't bear to think of doing anything else. Juliet Stevenson, thank you for giving us a masterclass. You're welcome. This week's podcast starred Juliet Stevenson and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doherty. Find more like it at howtoacademy.com where you'll also discover a wealth of live events starring some of the most eminent figures in science, politics, business and culture. And please, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.